0: Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Chapter 24, today's text will begin in verse 13, and we're taking a larger section of Scripture than we normally do, but for the sake of the continuity that's found in this one story, we'll do it in one section, one One piece text begins today in verse 13. We'll be going through verse 35. As we pick up the account of what is likely a familiar story to us of these two going on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Just remember something of what they're going through now. There's been the shocking reality of Jesus' death. That which they have not yet to be, to begun to fathom. How could this be? How can this be part of God's plan? How can Jesus be who we thought He was if death is in fact His end? Moving on to now the stunning report of His resurrection and then trying to figure out what all of that means. And certainly you have to be with these these and the other disciples wondering, can these things be so? Can it be that such a horrendous event as the death of Jesus be followed by such a wonderful possibility and a wonderful truth that he's risen from the dead? And that's the kind of thing that you would hear. You say, well, can that possibly be? And so that would certainly be the expected mindset of the disciples. Are they ready to embrace this truth that Jesus has, in fact, risen from? From the dead? Are they able to believe again? Are they able to again place their full confidence in Jesus Christ? So, as we travel with this pair from Jerusalem to Emmaus, let's consider their conversation and their state. Let's begin again with me here in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Which, by the way, we don't know exactly where that village was. We have no, no evidence of where it, it was. All we know is that it was about seven miles from Jerusalem, according to verse 13. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the, one, the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word and the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Here's the sermon. Everybody wished they had been there, you know. He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and He acted as though He were going further. But they urged Him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So He went in to stay with them. When He had reclined at the table with them, He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, He began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. As I mentioned to you on occasions before that I taught for 11 years in a Christian school. I taught in the primary grades and the last few years I was teaching, I was in grades 4th and 5th. Well, we're in a, in a setting where there was some interaction and crossing over from one classroom into another, and my classroom was right next to where the older students were. You went from my room into the older room and where it was all the way up through high school. And so I would often kind of meander through there if there was something I could do to assist using the ACE curriculum. The students have their desks against the walls, and they're working on their own, and I'll explain that this morning already to the bakers of how that worked, but... They're facing the wall, doing their own work. They need they need academic assistance. Then we would go by. They'd put a flag up, and that was the indicator. Please help me. And we'd come by and and give assistance. Well, I would again meander into that older learning center on occasions. And the the time that it was quite revealing of where my weaknesses were when I would get to a student who needs help, and they pull out this upper level math pace uh, math curriculum, and I realized very quickly I'm of very little help here. My High school math education was one year of algebra one, and that was it. There was a window of education when I was I graduated from high school in 1977. So this was the mid 70s. There was a small window of a few years when going through the, the high school curriculum here, you could take one year of math. Before I went through, you had to have two. After I went through, you had to have two. I was in this very narrow window. You could get, you could graduate from high school, one year of math. I took one year of algebra and that was it. And then got to college and had to take some more math and realize again it was basically the same thing. So, it very quickly that I would get into this upper level math with these students and I would look and say, This is out of my league. I can't grasp the concepts, much less, and even some of the things that I could look at and say, Yes, I've had this before. But let me see, how many years has that been? And it was still because I had. So little experience in math was unable to be of any help to them. Just recognizing my own inability to grasp the concepts and my own inability to assist them in their work. You have to think that the disciples of Jesus, as they are thinking through the events that have transpired, that there is a similar sense of their own inadequacy, their inability to To grasp what has taken place. And try to make sense of things. They sit back and they think back of the teaching of Jesus. The things that Jesus has said. And then they look at what has actually happened. Convinced that this was Jesus the Messiah. This was the one who they had hoped would be the one to redeem Israel. Which He did. And He was. But it certainly didn't take place as they had imagined. And as these two here are walking on the road to Emmaus, notice here, neither one assumes the role of teacher. It says that they're going and they're walking, and verse 14, they're talking to each other about these things that have taken place. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, and in fact, the idea is that they were questioning, you know, it's kind of when two people are have come together and they're talking about something, neither one of them fully grasping. so they'll start asking one another questions and say, boy, that's a good question. I don't have an answer to that either. I don't know how to piece all this stuff together as they were walking down the road and considering what had taken place here. That's kind of what we have here. And what a, a picture it gives to us, a very clear picture it gives to us regarding mankind, When we are considering spiritual truths. How quickly we are out of our league. We are, aren't we? You think about the spiritual truths that you have any measure, any degree of understanding. And all of us, I think, would quickly say, I I understand this because God has graciously condescended to me and given me some measure of understanding. And apart from Him, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, apart from being led by God through so much of biblical and spiritual truth, we're out of our league. We don't get it. We don't grasp it, and we're like these two guys here walking down the road. No, do I not get? It, I'm not a whole lot help to anybody else. And we can we can kind of sit and 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 discuss through some things. But again, apart from the Spirit of God coming in to open our eyes to give us understanding. That we are simply beyond ourselves. So with that in mind, we want to talk about today our dependence upon the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God teaches us. How we need the Spirit of God. God leading us into truth by His Spirit and considering the truths that are found here in this text. First of all, we see there is the inadequacy of mere human consideration. The inadequacy of mere human consideration. See, it is only God's Spirit, first of all, who reveals to us our own human inadequacy. That's true. The Spirit of God is the one who shows us we're not adequate for these things. But beyond that, it is also the Spirit of God who enables us to grasp truth that is beyond mere human consideration. And when we speak of spiritual things, when we speak of the gospel, we speak of the message of, of scriptures, the message of salvation and redemption. These are things that are beyond mere human consideration. You don't come to a clear understanding of these things simply by sitting down and looking and reading somewhere. If you're going to get it, the spirit of God must come and must open our eyes and reveal this truth to us. We see in our text here that we have these two travelers leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus, which is likely their home, considering all that's taken place. And their conversation. Good conversation, isn't it? Verse 14, as they're talking about with each other about all these things which had taken place. It's a good way to spend your time, isn't it? It's a good way to pass the time walking seven miles to Emmaus, thinking about spiritual things. Thinking about the things of God. Thinking about the things of Jesus Christ. But as they think about these things. There's a lot of questions aren't there? A lot of uncertainties. They can't resolve these questions. Merely by coming together. And discussing. Even as they walk. So Jesus approaches them. And he is for whatever reason they are prevented from recognizing Him. There is a divine intervention here that prevents them from recognizing who Jesus is. And so Jesus, He approaches them and He asks them, what are y'all talking about? He says, well, you're the only... Listen to these guys. Are you the only person around here that's visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened here the last few days? You know, what's Jesus say? What things? And so this is one of those occasions you have to think that he, there's a sense of humor, here, isn't there? He's listened to these guys talk. He's come, he knows what they've been talking about. He asked them what they are talking about. And they kind of condescendingly, Don't you know you're the only guy in town that doesn't know what's going on here? And he just says, What well, things? And he describes here in verse 17 the condition of these. He says, they stood still, and when he asked them about what they are talking about, they stood still, and he says they were looking sad. See, here's where they are as a result of what they've experienced and encountered the last few days. their sadness. best that they can do when they consider, when they discuss the events of what's transpired, they come with sadness. And surprised that any would be unaware. As Jesus comes to them. And, G- and they ask, even to Jesus, when Jesus asks, Well, is this Jesus? Haven't you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus the Nazarene, verse 19. And look how they describe him in there in verse 19. Is this says, this thing is about Jesus Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all people. What are they saying about them? This is the one, he's, he's a spokesman for God. He's speaking the very words of God as a prophet. And he's doing the great things. and His, his teachings are, are marvelous truths. And he's one that, that men have recognized and that God has honored as one who is a, a prophet of God doing mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And then they give an account in verse 20 of his crucifixion and his death at the hands of the Jews. Incidentally, this is not anti-Semitism. This is just truth. It was the Jews. Verse 20, the chief priests and the rulers who delivered Jesus to the sentence of death. And although not by their hands, they crucified him. It was those who did it. So they described what transpired and then they, they mentioned to Jesus in verse 21 their hope. We were hoping. we were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem israel so do you realize what's what's implied here we were hoping but now hope is either waning or it is lost and gone altogether our hope's gone We were hoping that this, it was He who would redeem Israel. And evidently, by what's taken place here, our hope has been misplaced. We put our hope in someone that we shouldn't have. And now all hope is lost, it's gone, because Jesus was crucified. And then they go on to say in verse 21, See, Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Now, the question is here, why did they say this? Was it the belief that after three days, the Jewish concept that after three days, the Spirit was gone from the body and never to return? Was it because Jesus had in fact mentioned the third day, and they didn't really know what it meant, but thought three days, maybe something's going to happen. As said in verse 21, it's the third day since these things happened. And now we've got this new problem. This new dilemma. You've got these women who've come and they've amazed us all. We haven't made a process what's happened here yet. And now we've got to process more. These women have come and they've said they've had this vision of angels. And these angels, <clears throat> excuse me. These angels reported to them that Jesus was alive. And then some of our own went and checked it out. You can't trust these women, right? So some of our own went to check it out. And sure enough, verse 24, just exactly as the women had said, but didn't see him, didn't see Jesus. What's the focus that we see here in this text? They still don't understand, do they? They still don't understand what has been and even is transpiring, what's taking place. They've been in the middle of all the activity. Likely they have been eyewitnesses to much and they can recite the facts. This is what happened. And they've done that, haven't they? This is what happened. Detail for detail in the last few days. And they had rightly hoped in Jesus' redeeming work. We had hoped that He was the one who would redeem Israel. They had rightly hoped in Jesus' redeeming work. Simply, they misunderstood the nature of His redeeming work. That He's going to do something much greater than redeem an ethnic people from the hand of Roman rule. That He's going to redeem a lost people from the hand and from the power of sin and Satan. That's His redemptive work. It's much greater than Israel. And it's the true Israel, the church, it's His people, that He redeems. So they had rightly hoped in His redeeming work. They just had misunderstood it, the nature of that work. And so they discussed between themselves, talking and what's taking place, questioning what's happened here. And they're unable to piece it all together in any kind of a sensible and a coherent manner. There's things they just don't fit here. And such is the nature of spiritual truth and realities, folks. We are dependent, just as these men here were who are eyewitnesses of all these things, we are absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God that there is no there is Insufficient. We are insufficient simply living by mere human consideration. We don't sit down and just examine the facts. We need the help and the aid of the Spirit of God. Mere contemplation, mere consideration, mere evaluation of, of all the facts are inadequate. The spiritual eyes and understanding must be opened by God. And just as true today, isn't it? These two are just like the rest of mankind. Just like us. Spiritual truth must be revealed by God's Spirit. The Christian message, the Gospel, will never be embraced by a human heart by merely studying the facts. You can sit and you can hear the truth of the Gospel message time after time after time after time and never embrace it. In fact, some can hear it and they walk away from it as being utter nonsense. Knowing the truth is important and we must share the truth of the gospel. Our, Our faith is rooted in actual, objective, historical truth but knowing is not sufficient is not sufficient simply knowing in the mind does not convert the soul it's totally different to know objective truth and to have spiritual understanding and these men were simply walking and trying to figure out these things by their mere human consideration of the facts, and they're getting nowhere. See, it must be God who opens our eyes, it must be God who renews our hearts. They say, Well, I can understand that in the light of in the light of people who are natural, people who are lost, people who never come to Christ, but, but don't we have the Spirit of God within us? Don't we <clears throat> don't we have understanding given to us? Well, folks, my own personal experience tells me that that did not end with conversion. I still need the Spirit of God. Don't we? Absolutely. We still need the work of the Spirit within our minds to give us understanding because we are still engaged in the battle of faith versus unbelief. Haven't you fought that battle this week? Haven't you fought the battle of unbelief this week? See, the battle is still there. And it's not just that we can go through and just look at the facts, folks. It's when we go to the Scripture and the Spirit of God takes that Scripture and enlivens it afresh to us. That's that's the work of the Spirit. When we embrace that truth. See, we are still, as the people of God, we are still in process. It's called sanctification. It's that life, <clears throat> excuse me, it is that lifelong process. I was talking with the kids and the curriculum that we've been using. We've taken a break from here for a few weeks. But we've, wanted, we've been talking about just the order of salvation. We've talked about sanctification. And I ask these guys, well, what is sanctification? They've been over it a few times. And they say, well, sanctification has been being made more and more like Jesus. I say, well, how long does it take? And they kind, of, kind of more all your life. <laughs> yeah, it does. Till the day we die, we're being—we're in the process of being sanctified. From the day we die, till the day we die, we're still in this battle of faith versus unbelief, faith versus sight. We like to live by sight, don't we? I do. That's much more comfortable. Live by sight. We still need the Spirit of God, don't we? Just merely sitting back and thinking about it. My own resources not enough. I have to come back to spiritual truth. And spiritual truth is made alive by the Spirit of God. So just as these two here, in their mere contemplation and consideration of these things, is inadequate to, to really grasp it. Likewise it is for us. We still are having our thinking Corrected. We're still having our minds changed, the renewing of our minds, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Still in this process, but it's a process that the Spirit of God must work within us. The inadequacy of mere human consideration. Secondly, we see here there is the imperative of correct biblical interpretation. The imperative of correct biblical interpretation interpretation. See, Jesus, when he speaks to these two travelers, he reveals to them the nature of the problem in his rebuke. In verse 25, what does he say? He said to them, oh, foolish men. Here the word foolish is the idea of not those who are it's just people who are uninformed. He's not talking about someone who is just walking in in willful ignorance and defiance, but just someone who is uninformed here. Oh, foolish men. And slow of heart, here's a gentle rebuke, isn't it? Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Here's the problem you're slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? For the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And then verse 27 beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So he addresses their unwillingness to believe the scriptures and his correction assists them in their consideration of the scriptures. And first of all, they must take the scriptures for them and also for us must take the scriptures as a comprehensive whole. The scriptures are not given in a smorgasbord buffet. Take what you like, leave what you will manner. That we must take the Scriptures as a comprehensive whole. Jesus says to them, you are slow of heart to believe what? In all that the prophets have spoken. Slow to believe in everything that the prophets have spoken. We've been on this before as we've talked about some of the difficulty that they encountered when Jesus would speak of His being delivered over to the Gentiles, of being put to death. Of being rejected, and they couldn 't understand that because the idea of Jesus of the Messiah dying that was just so completely foreign to what their their mindset was for the for the messiah, so we and we 've talked about how easily and readily, they have embraced the glory of the coming Messiah. Oh, we can't wait when the Scripture speaks of this glorious King, this one who is coming to redeem Israel, to set Israel up anew and afresh as the, as the nation, as the people of God. Looking forward to that glorious day. Establishing His own kingdom. But they have missed the message of the suffering Messiah. The message of the suffering servant, the message of the sufferings recorded, for example, in the book of the Psalms, the sufferings recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 in particular. So much there that reveals to us that this is part of God's redemptive plan, that this Messiah is coming not only in glory, and he is coming in glory. But if He comes in glory only and He does not give Himself in order to save His people, then they are still in their sins and His glorious kingdom is simply an establishment of judgment. So He comes suffering. He comes enduring the wrath of His own Father, having the sins of His people placed upon Him so that He might redeem them for for himself, redeem them from their sin and have a kingdom of his people. So there is a kingdom, that he, the kingdom of God as it comes. It is a kingdom, yes, of judgment. It is a kingdom of judgment upon his enemies. But it is also a kingdom of mercy and grace to his people. And God is glorified. And so Jesus' rebuke here. Failing to believe all that the prophets have spoken, you've got to consider the whole of Scripture. And if they had done so, if they had believed all that the Scripture said, all that the prophets had recorded there in the in the Old Testament the question of verse 26 would be somewhat rhetorical. They should know and the answer. Was it, necess- was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? Wasn't that necessary? And the answer is, oh, of course it was necessary. That's what the Old Testament Scriptures say. But they're not, they're not clued into that, are they? So they failed to take the scripture as a comprehensive whole. And the second thing Jesus explains to us about the Scriptures is that the Scriptures are to be understood and interpreted Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself. I feel like I'm beating on a drum that I've beat on 20 times going through Luke, but we have to, don't we? He goes to the Old Testament from the books of Moses, the first books of the scripture, the first five books of the scriptures, through all the prophets, through the wisdom literature, where Christ is prefigured, where Christ is foretold, where Christ is revealed in pictures in so many different ways, all through the scripture. And Jesus just begins this process of going through. Here it is. Here it is. You can go back to the books of Moses and you can go back to the book of Genesis and you can find Jesus Christ. He's there. This is about Him. Jesus' suffering and even His death fit what the Old Testament Scriptures anticipate. See, these two... Imperatives for them of seeing the scripture as a comprehensive whole and understanding the scripture as being that which is Christ centered it's just as necessary for the church today that we believe first of all we believe all the prophets we believe all that is given there from the scriptures. That we believe what is spoken in the word of God regarding God, regarding sin, regarding man, regarding Jesus, regarding salvation. We'll say, well, I believe that, Pastor. What's your point here? My point is this. Ask yourself a question. What does my life demonstrate that I do not believe of the scriptures? What is there in my life by the way that I live, by the things I do, by the way that I think are an indicator that the reality is I do not often believe all of Scripture? For example, do I really believe what the Scriptures say about God? Do I believe everything the Scriptures say about God? And before you answer that... Think how many times that your life has been filled with complaint. Do you really believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God is good and kind and gracious to his children? Do you believe that God's ways are perfect? So why do we complain? It's because at that moment we are not believing all the truth of Scripture. See, this isn't as easy as, oh yeah, I can believe what all, I accept it all. Well, when the rubber meets the road in life, that's the test. Do I really believe all that the Scripture says regarding sin? When I am unrepentant in my heart? When I excuse sin? Or when I'm just merely indifferent to sin? No big deal. Am I really believing all that the Scripture says about sin? Do I really believe what the scripture says about myself? What the Bible says about the human race? Do I really believe what the scripture says about my own inability and weakness? Do I really believe what the scripture says about my need of of God and my need of grace? Well, what am I saying when I am negligent regarding the means of grace that God has given to me? What am I saying when I am prayerless? What I am saying when I am prideful? I'm saying I don't believe all the scriptures. What am I saying? Do I believe all that the scriptures say in regard to Jesus Christ? I know. We can all nod our heads. Yeah, I believe everything the Bible says about Jesus haven't this week you denied some measure of it? When we have ignored His teachings, His commands, this one that we say is our our prophet, this one that we say is our king, do you believe that? Do we believe what the Scriptures say? What all... Everything the Scriptures say about salvation, boy, that's a big one. And just take any part of it you want to take. But do I believe what the Scripture says about salvation if I come to a point where I simply resign myself to sin? Do I believe that what the Scripture says that sin is no longer my master, that I am dead to sin? Do I believe when, what the Scripture says about salvation when I live with an earthly mindset and my affections are not set upon things above, but they're set upon things on the earth? Am I believing what the Scripture says about salvation? See, we fall prey to this, don't we, every time we sin. Sin is just a manifestation of unbelief. I don't believe This is true. So, but also, it is necessary. It is right that we see Christ through the Scriptures. That Christ be the lens through which we interpret. All of scripture that Christ is central in its focus and in its thing, theme and the person and work of Jesus Christ is revealed to us throughout. Certainly, it's not as clear in the Old Testament. We understand that. But having the New Testament, having the New Testament, we can look back and we can see then, boy, there is so much of Christ here that I never would have imagined. Now, we need to be careful it's not as though we go back and look at every Old Testament verse and every little little nuance and twist we can. We look in that and we see Christ. We're not compelled to do that. But there are some surprising references that Jesus gives that he says he fulfills from the Old Testament. So there's a measure in which Christ is revealed, I think, that we'll never grasp it. Of what's in the Old Testament. But we do well and we do right when we see Christ in the Old Testament. There are those who criticize. They say, well, if you're doing that, you're reading back into things, you're forcing things. Well, Jesus answers that. Here's his answer. Beginning with Moses with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture's. Folks, he wasn't reading the New Testament gospels. He was referencing the Old Testament scriptures. And he's all through it. So that we do not rightly understand the Old Testament scriptures if we do not understand them look if we do not view them through the lens of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What a glory this is to our God to give such a glorious word that proclaims the glory of His Son. I mean, Who but God could do this? So that the affirmations that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in fact the Christ, are apparent because of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So there's the imperative here of a correct biblical interpretation that we must take Take it as a whole. We must believe all that the Scriptures say. And that our test this this afternoon, when we are tempted to sin, am I going to believe what God's Word says or not? And when you sin, you say, Lord, I didn't believe You. There's part of my repentance. I didn't believe that Your way was best. I didn't believe that Your way was good. And thirdly we see is the spirit of god teaching us the importance of divine self-revelation these were men that were not strangers to jesus they'd seen him it's very clear about it says because they recognized him at the breaking of bread there in verse 35. i'm sorry not 35 but in verse 31 their eyes were open they recognized him the significant truth here is that human eyes are made to see according to God's plan. As God determines. These men perceived only what God determined, no more, no less. And all of man's understanding of God is utterly dependent upon God's self-revelation. Very closely parallels what we've already emphasized in the inadequacy of of mere human consideration. The flip side of that is the importance of divine self-revelation. God must speak. God must reveal himself to us. So much, most of what we know, most of what we know about God is from his written self-revelation. The word of God. Some of what we know is what we call general revelation, which is, Excuse me, which is in creation, but it is a self-revelation so that we can look into creation and we can understand something of the nature of God. Any man can, which is why I don't believe that there's any such thing as a true atheist. I don't believe it's true. I don't care what they say. Because it's, it's out there. And I believe people can so convince themselves or harden themselves that they wish there's, and I hope there's not a God. But it's out there. The testimony of, of the greatness of God. You're not redeemed by that. There's not enough in creation to bring you to an understanding of salvation. But there's a measure of God's self revelation in His creation. It's there for anyone to see. So clearly that even the psalmist says it's the fool who says in his heart, there's no god so all of man's understanding dependent upon the revelation of god the person of and the work of jesus christ in its fullest meaning and applied to the heart is dependent upon god's revelation of him to us remember the words of jesus and we've talked about so many times the words of jesus to peter and Peter's great confession, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' words to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. Depending upon God's revelation of him to us. Jesus, who was so well known by these men. They knew him. They knew him by sight. Unrecognized by them. Verse 16. They were prevented from recognizing. A divine activity here. Unrecognized here. Until God decides. See God conceals and he reveals. As he wills. For his purposes. So we confess our own dependence upon God. And all that pertains to himself. Don't we? I want to have a knowledge of God. I'm going to have to be communing with God. I'm to be a worshiper of God. I'm to to walk with God. I'm to be a student of His Word and prayer for saying, Oh, God, open my eyes to see. It is His self-revelation. Listen, folks. It is God's self-revelation that delivers us from the sins of worshiping images and idols. It? Now our idol may not be a little statue. But I guarantee these are what Calvin say? That we're, we're manufacturing idols. We'll have an idol. But it is God's revelation of Himself that delivers us from that sin. We understand that there is a true and a great and a glorious God. And apart from God's self-revelation, we would simply manufacture God in our image, wouldn't we? So we give praise and we give adoration to our God because of his grace to us. He has revealed himself to us. We know what we know of him because he has chosen to reveal. And we love him because he's first loved us. He's taken the initiative, hasn't he? What initiative could we take? Have any grasp and understanding of God. What's he like? Where do you go? How do you begin? <clears throat> and if you want to know the futile answer to that question, you look to the false religions of men. This is where it goes. This is where human reason will lead you. This is what will happen if you're if the Spirit of God does not open our eyes, if God does not reveal Himself, you fall into you all know, these other false religions. That's what men do. They create something, but there's no life in it but it also has implications in our sharing of the Gospel, doesn't it? We just need to understand the fact, folks, you share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with people, apart from God's revelation to them, they're not going to get it. Just be ready. Now, I say be ready, I think we need to pray and ask the Lord, open hearts, leave them to people that are going to respond. Be ready for that too. You know, be ready for God to reveal himself, but understand if God does nothing, nothing's happening. There is no conversion. And the best we can do is persuade a mind, but there is no salvation. So there's more than the communicating of information. God must intervene. And it, there's implications for us in that, isn't it? Isn't there? The importance of God's divine self-revelation. So what's the Spirit of God revealing to you today? To be reminded, I trust reminded of our own the inadequacy of what we bring to the table. The things of God I give myself to the study of the Word of God, to the truths of God, but I recognize, Lord, there's more to be done here. The inadequacy of human consideration. We need God's help. We need God to open our minds as we study the Scriptures, that the truths of Scripture be revealed to us and we embrace those things. But also the imperative of a correct biblical interpretation. Are you believing all the Scripture says? And what are the areas where the Spirit of God is revealing to you No, I'm not believing God here. I'm not believing God in relation to this circumstance. I'm not believing God in relation to this trial. I'm not believing God in relation to this sin. And to see the Scriptures as Christ-centered. Christ Christ is all in all. He's there. And to see see the redemptive work of God in the personal work of Christ, even in the reading of the Old Testament... Which is why we read the Old Testament Scriptures here. Which is why, I don't know for certain, but I'm likely to preach through an Old Testament book next. Christ is there. But the importance also of divine revelation. That we might see Christ as these saw Christ. They had walked with Him. They had talked with Him. Even kind of, Looked down on Him for a little while until they heard Him talk so well. Then they invited Him in and He became the host. He broke the bread. And then they saw Him. God's self-revelation. He opened their eyes to see Him. And they saw Him in His glory of who He he was. May the Spirit of God. May the Spirit of God enable us to see our need of Him and we walk and live in dependence upon Him. Our Father, we thank you that you condescend to our weakness. Lord, that you know our weakness and our frailties much more clearly than we do. And we would like to believe that we're not as bad off as we are. But when we come to your word and your scripture meets your spirit meets us. Lord, it's worse than we thought. And Father, may we live in dependence upon You. Oh, Father, forgive us the times that we've, we've thought that we would do something to impress You, do something for You. Forgive us the times that we've looked to our own strength, our own resources. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you meet us, that you enable us, that you give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.